Welcome back to the Baseball Plug. I'm your host, Micah Fleischman. Alongside me is my co-host and good friend, Nicholas Bear. Nick, how's it going? I'm doing very well today, Micah. It's a little bit of an early wake-up call, but uh, I'm excited to uh, get this going and uh, talk to our guest, who I guess you're going to introduce now. On that note, we are joined by author, reporter, two-time marathon finisher, husband and father, Brian Hope. Brian, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks, guys, for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Brian. For those that don't know who you are, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Um, okay. Uh, since 2007, I've been the uh, Yankees beat reporter for MLB.com. So uh, basically have traveled with the Yankees everywhere they've gone since 2007. Um, got to cover the 2009 World Series win, wrote a book about it called Mission 27. And, um, you know, just got actually just got done with the Field of Dreams game in Iowa, which was a uh, an awesome experience. So uh, basically just, uh, you know, where the Yankees go, I'm there too, writing stories about it. I'm glad you brought up the Field of Dreams game because you have an interesting story as to how you got to Iowa. Would you mind sharing that with us? Man, um, yeah, well, I had, I was, the original plan was I was going to, fly to Chicago, spend the night here in a nice hotel, hopefully get a nice dinner and then road trip out in the morning with the, the White Sox beat reporter, Scott Merkin. And um, I had an American Airlines flight that was canceled. They had torrential thunderstorms here in the, uh, the Chicago area. So nothing was getting in and out. I had an American Airlines flight that was canceled. And then I had a United Airlines flight that was canceled. And uh, they told me there was just no way to get to Chicago, uh, no way I was getting out that night. And so it was about 10 o'clock at night, and I'm doing the math in my head. I'm thinking, if I drive, I'll get there for first pitch. And so I said, do you have a rental car? And uh, grabbed one at Newark Airport and drove, I think it was about 20 hours, uh, uh, almost straight through. It took a nap in Ohio, but um, I, I made it. I made it in time for first pitch, and um, it was really cool. It was definitely worth a drive. So was it as cool as we saw it on TV? Because I was watching, Nick was watching. It was it was pretty awesome to see on TV. Was it, you know, a surreal experience to be there? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of the movie anyway to begin with, and that's always been on my bucket list to, to go to that uh, field in Dyersville, Iowa, and kind of experience the movie magic there. And just the fact that they were going to – they carved a major league diamond into that cornfield and were able to play that game in front of almost 8,000 people. It was so cool, and I feel like – even if you're not a Yankee fan or a White Sox fan, if you loved baseball and you were able to be there that day, there was just something special about that place. And, uh, um, you know, they, they always say in the movie, you know, is this heaven? It felt like baseball heaven. And uh, you could tell that just by looking through the crowd. I mean, there were, of course, Yankee fans and, and White Sox fans there, but there were fans. I, I saw probably every team jersey there. And it was really cool because, like I said, if, if you love baseball, then how do you not get romantic and a little choked up about that game it was really cool baseball did a great yeah. job yeah and then i mean did, did it exceed your expectations because i don't know if people really had much like this was the first game in iowa so like no one really had any expectations so what we were your some, expectations we didn't have a base of how yeah like, we didn't yeah 
No, yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I was with the Yankees for their London series a couple of years ago, but the, and that's kind of the same idea, playing a major league game in a new location. But you you can't compare London to Dyersville, Iowa, which has about 3,000 people in it. It was just small-town America, and actually getting to drive it was really cool because I got to see the whole landscape of Iowa and these rolling hills of corn. I mean, there's just nothing but corn everywhere. And then you make the turn and you go onto this dirt road and uh, there's this little farmhouse and a baseball field that you have seen a thousand times from the movie. And then this bigger baseball field that they were able to construct. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that they're going to continue that next year. I think it should be an annual thing. I think every team should get an opportunity to play in it. And did, speaking of the corn, did you get to walk through the corn maze and perhaps did you get lost at all in there? Because I know Britain, I know Britain got lost in there. Yeah, it, it was confusing and I was going on no sleep. I definitely got lost in a corn maze and um, yeah, I had to ask somebody for help to get out. Of there. Uh, it was really cool. They, they did a, a great job with that. And I, you can't tell when you're on the ground, but I know they carved the MLB logo into the corn. Um, yeah, so you saw that from the aerial shot. shot, but when you're in it, it just looks like corn, corn, corn. Yeah. So switching to a little bit of the personal side, how old were you and when did you realize that, you know, sports media and beat reporting was kind of something that you wanted to do? I was about your age, to be honest with you. I, I was 14 years old and I was living, obviously, with my parents and in their house. And um, I, I was lucky to come along at a time when the Internet was just starting. We had dial up Internet with Prodigy and AOL and all that stuff. I mean, we're talking about the olden days. But, um, yeah, so uh, I was actually a Mets fan at the time. Mets were my favorite team. I started out as a Yankee fan and then the strike just crushed me in 94. And I kind of kind of gave up on baseball for about a year and a half. And my dad was a Met fan. My grandpa was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. So they were like pushing me. Like, hey, you know, watch the Mets with us. You know, they, they got this exciting young team. So um, so I, I bid on that. Of course, that's the worst time to, to start watching the Mets growing up in New York. Uh, you know, being <laughs> the Yankees are about to win the World Series with Derek Jeter coming up being rookie of the year. They're going to win in 96, 98, 99, 2000. So I was on the Mets side of town for that. But, um, you know, we're talking about the old days of the Internet. There was no Mets.com. I think Yankees.com had just started. There were, it, it was really kind of uh, these very primitive blogs out there. And I said, I, I love baseball. I love writing about it. Like, I'm going to try to, to make a, a, a webpage about it. And today we call it a blog, but uh, we didn't have that word then. And, you know, I just started that. And I guess there was a, a need for it because I, I built up an audience pretty quickly. And um, that just kind of inspired me to keep going. And once I got a foot in the door, I just never wanted to let it close. And that's uh, offered me an internship in 2000. So, um, you know, one week after my high school graduation, I'm in the press box at Shea Stadium, you know, covering a major league game. And I, I was just the most insane experience ever. I remember um, going into Bobby Valentine's office. He was the manager at that time and just kind of feeling lightheaded my first time in there. I was like, wow. I mean, I was a fan. I, I bought tickets to games. I, I used to wait for autographs outside the, uh, the, the first base exit. And to just be in there with the, the Mets manager, I don't even think I asked a question then, but um, it, I, I just felt I kept waiting for somebody to tap me on the shoulder and kick me out of there. And it just never happened. Once I was in that uh, behind those doors, I never wanted to get out of there. 
And you mentioned that you grew up a Mets fan, but as we said earlier, you cover the Yankees now. So, I mean, what's that like? Because obviously I'm sure you're, uh, there's a part of you that's still a baseball fan. Obviously the reporter side of you has to take the bias out of there. Like what's that like having to cover the Yankees as a Mets fan? That's got to be kind of weird for you at times. No, I, I think that when you're, when you start, when you put that reporter hat on all that fandom goes out the window. And I know that that, it might be hard to believe, but it's true. I mean, I'm, I'm doing a job now. I don't even, I, I can't even tell you who's on the Mets right now. I don't think like, I don't, I, I, I don't watch their games. I, I I'm just completely focused on the Yankees and um, you know, I, I watch the Mets when the Yankees play against them, but to me, it's a completely different team than the one I grew up cheering for. So I have really no feeling for the guys who are on that team now. And, um, you know, my focus is completely on the Yankees. I mean, that is what I build my calendar around. That's what, uh, you know, from day one of spring training to whenever they're done in the postseason or if they win the world series, I mean, my life is literally, um, tethered to the Yankees and whether they win or lose, um, you know, there's a, there's another game tomorrow. And so, you know, they lost a heartbreaking game during that Iowa series. And it's uh, you write the story and turn the pages on the next game. It's like, all right, where's the next game. It's going to be in Chicago uh, later today. And um, so, you know, baseball is such a long season that I feel like when you're covering it, you can't get too tied up into the outcome of any single game because um, you know, when I started doing this, somebody explained it to me, each game is a chapter in the book of a season. And so whether that's a winning season or a losing season, your job is to tell that story in the greater narrative of where is this team going? In the Yankees case, they're a team that was supposed to win the world series has had um, lots of adversity earlier in the year. And uh, now is trying to make a run to get in the playoffs and, and try to get to where they're supposed to be. So um, it, it really is uh, each baseball season is different. And um and they, they're always entertaining. They, they, especially with the Yankees, they give us plenty to write about. Oh my gosh. Yay. Wild card. Yay. One and two <laughs> run finishes, you know, nothing's easy with this team, man. It's, you know, implosion in a bullpen and then we score a run and then we blow three saves in every inning. And it's uh it's a whole fiasco. Has there been one guy, you know, over the past couple of years, you've been really impressed with uh, on the Yankees. Cause for me, that guy's been DJ LeMahieu. Has yeah. there been a guy that you see? That was my team? answer. Yeah. It, yeah, it, and I know DJ had a, a tough start to this year, as many guys did. But, I mean, his first couple of years in New York, he was so automatic. And I remember, uh, you know, this past offseason, talking to people within the Yankee front office and just saying, like, what's going on with DJ? Like, how are you going to let this guy walk? You cannot let this guy walk. He has been your most valuable player the last couple of years. And they knew, and they knew that. Um, it was all just a matter of – finding a, a contract length and, and dollar amount that was going to work. But the Yankees had no intention of letting DJ LeMahieu go. And he's such a valuable player um, to this team because you can put him anywhere, uh, you know, in this team where guys are very inflexible. Like I'm thinking specifically of Giancarlo Stanton, where you know, <laughs> it, it, it creates some headaches in making the, the, and it's better. It's good that he started to play some outfield here, but um you know, there's so many guys on this team that you can't move around to different spots. The fact you can put DJ at second base, you can put him at first base, you can put him at third if you have to. Um, you, I mean, honestly, he could probably play short and you'd be fine for a day or, or there. Um, I feel pretty good about the idea that 
DJ LeMahieu, wherever you put him on the field, he's going to do the job. And um, and he's one of the clutch, one of the best clutch hitters that I've seen. Um, you know, I know that hasn't been completely true this year, but definitely with runners in scoring position the last couple of years, like if you had runners on base and the game on the line, that was the guy that you would want at the plate. Yeah. So do you have any idea what the Yankees are going to do with Luke Voigt? Because when Rizzo comes back, we talked about Stan playing the outfield. I don't think Stan can play the outfield every day. I, he can't even run one out to first base. <laughs> so what does that leave Luke Voigt? We saw in the playoffs a couple of years ago, he was on the bench. And I feel like he's too good to play on the bench. Were you surprised that they didn't deal him at the deadline? I think they looked into it. I think they weren't going to give away Voigt for nothing, though. Um, you know, there's no reason they had to get rid of him. And obviously – now in a situation where you were planning on Rizzo being your first baseman down the stretch, but he gets hit with COVID and he's out here and we don't really know when he's coming back. So Voight's getting that opportunity to um, kind of go forward. And he even talked about it. He was pretty honest about it and said, look, I understand why they traded for Rizzo. I haven't been here all year. And so he's trying to earn his place back. And I think that if you have Rizzo and Voight both healthy, Look, you're going to play Rizzo at first base. That's why you traded for him to be your first baseman down the stretch. But I, I still think that Voigt can help this team. The fact that Stanton is playing some outfield maybe opens up a DH spot. Maybe you can put either Rizzo or Voigt there. I would prefer to have Voigt at DH because I think that Rizzo's glove is better at first base. But, um, you know, I, I think that you know, Voigt is just looking for an opportunity to contribute wherever you can here. And um, he's not going to have any guaranteed playing time down the stretch the rest of this year. But Rizzo is a free agent after the year. I don't know if he's coming back. I would I would bet that he's going to test the market. Um, so I, I guess a lot is still uncertain about what the future is there. But if, you know, hypothetically, if if Rizzo leaves as a free agent after this year and you've got Luke Voigt waiting to step back in at first base, that's a pretty good situation to be in. And you mentioned earlier about how the Yankees have faced a lot of adversity this season. So on the other team that I think a lot of people thought were almost a lock to make the World Series, my team being the Dodgers. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it's actually kind of crazy. Both the Yankees and Dodgers are going to probably have to settle for a wild card spot, it looks like, um, at this point. Does anyone ever talk about, like, the favorites coming into the season, like in the clubhouse, the players, the coaches, or once they're on the field, is it just like, all right, just win the game. We don't care about who the favorites are at this point. Well, they know they're favored. I mean, they, especially, you know, I can't speak for the Dodgers, but in the Yankees uh, room, they know the expectations. They know that they're a team that was supposed to come in to win the American League East. That was their first goal this year. And then go into the playoffs and and make it to the World Series and, and try and go win a World Series, that Mission 28 that they've been trying to do since uh, 2009. And um, so they're they're very aware of what the outside expectations are. But it, it, when you're in that room and you're wearing that uniform, that's all talk. Um, you you got to go out and put up and, um, you know, and, and follow through on that. And this is a team that hasn't been able to do that so far. And then the fact that we're talking about wild cards, look, that that's fine. I mean, you have to get in the playoffs somehow. They, I don't think they're going to win the division here. I think they're running out of time here to, to close that gap, but you get in as a wild card and, uh, you know, you can make some magic happen in the postseason. But the, the first mission is getting past that point and getting in. And once you're in, anything can happen because, you know, Derek Jeter always used to say um, the best teams make it to October. The hottest team 
will win in October. And that's what you need. You need to, to hit it just at the right time, have everything clicking and, and go on a tear and get those 11 wins that you need to, to go win a World Series. Yeah, I was talking to Nick before you came on, and we were talking about Trent Grisham, uh, 2018, the wild card game. If he doesn't botch that ball in right field, odds are the Nats don't win that game, and the Nats don't go to the World Series, and the Nats don't win it. And if the Astros win it, how bad does that look for baseball after you know the cheating thing gets uncovered? Yeah, no, I, I mean, the Nationals definitely helped out um, I think all of baseball, I, I think that once, uh, you know, the Astros are still dealing with the fallout from all that. We're still hearing the chance for Altuve pretty much everywhere they go. And I think that's going to follow him and, and the Astros, anybody who was on those Houston teams, it's going to follow them like a stain for the rest of their careers and can't go back in time and change it. Um, you know, you just kind of have to move forward there, but I can tell you from the Yankee perspective, uh, there's no forgiving the Astros for that. Nope. A lot of a lot of guys on that team feel like they were cheated out of something, especially I, I think that 2017 team, because that was a special group, um, a fun group that really came out of nowhere, wasn't expected to even make the playoffs. People were talking about, about that as an 85 win team, and they really played over their heads. You had the baby bombers come up, guys like Aaron Judge and Gary Sanchez was in his second year, and Luis Severino was a big part of that team. Greg Bird was a big part of that team. I mean, you had guys uh, coming up from the farm system and contributing, and it was such a fun, refreshing time to be around the Yankees because that's not something the Yankees do. The Yankees are known for going out and signing the big free agent, and you get the veteran star, and um, you try and win the World Series. They were going with the kids that year, and the kids got them all the way to a Game 7 in the ALCS. And I, I remember talking to CeCe Sabathia just recently about it, and uh, he's still mad about it. He still feels like he got cheated out of that, and that was his last chance to, to go pitch in a World Series. And, um, you know, who knows? I mean, the, you know, the Yankees didn't score a lot of runs in that series either, especially when they got to Houston. So who knows what – um, what could have happened, but, uh, you know, when you're in the playoffs, one pitch, one hit, one, one run means so much. And, uh, you know, if the Astros had played that on the level, who knows what the outcome would have been? Yeah. You know, there was just something special. You talked about that, that 2017 team down to nothing to the Indians came back one, three straight Didi Gregorius, two homers off eventual Yankee Corey Kluber. Yeah, it, it, it was really just something special, something kind of out of a movie that we didn't expect and we didn't get our Hollywood ending. And I don't think that anybody on that Yankee team, and certainly the Yankee fans, I don't think they'll ever forgive the Astros. No, nor should they really, honestly. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm definitely not going to campaign for uh, forgetting what the Astros did because I don't think anybody will. So yeah, I, I think that it's part of it. Um, you, you have to move on at some point and uh, you just hope that uh, the Astros and every other team are, are doing things on the level going forward. But the idea of teams trying to find an advantage that's been going on forever in baseball. Guys have been scuffing balls and guys have been <laughs> balls and, you know, uh, um, you know, obviously baseball had the whole steroid scandal. If there's anything, any way that a team can win it an extra game, they're going to try to do that. I think that the difference here is that you're abusing technology and you're using something that's uh, outside of the field of play to influence that. But you, you can go back and hear stories, you know, from the fifties, they talk about that Bobby Thompson home run and, you know, people were saying, yep, exactly. There's a guy in the, in the scoreboard with binoculars stealing signs. So that stuff's been going on forever. It's just now we've got new, better technology to do it. 
Yeah, you I'm really. Go ahead, Nick. Go ahead. I'm, Nick. I'm really glad that you brought up uh, that that guys have always been trying to find ways to get an advantage to win an extra game here and there. Because I mean, one or two games is the whole difference in some team seasons. So uh, the big thing this year has obviously been the sticky stuff on the baseball. Uh, what was uh, what was the reaction around baseball in the Yankees clubhouse when? the rules started coming down about it and all that. Cause I'll say as a baseball fan, I was like, I don't really care. I mean, if it means that the pitcher can control the ball better then I'm all for not seeing hit by pitches, but what was the feeling like in the Yankees clubhouse and around baseball? Yeah. I, I used to be on that bandwagon too. I mean, I covered the Michael Pineda game at Fenway park. You remember <laughs> that about five or six years ago where he had the pine tar all over his neck. And I, I remember going into the Yankee clubhouse that night and also the Red Sox clubhouse and David Ortiz was in the, the Red Sox clubhouse. And he was saying, we don't care. Like we would rather know that a pitch is not going to hit us in the ear than uh, you know, then if a guy can control it better then we don't care if he uses pine tar. But I think what you're finding now is, um, now, you know, I just talked about the technology that baseball has. Now we've got spin rates and stuff. We never even heard about spin rate back in 2014 when Michael Pineda was on the mound. So now we actually can put a number to it and say, oh, wait, it's not just that the guy is throwing more strikes. It's that that ball is moving. It's harder to hit. It's literally harder to hit the more revolutions you get on it now. And it's making guys better pitchers. And you saw that early in the year. Scoring was so down that. I think baseball just felt it had to do something to, to even that playing field and make it better for the hitters because we were seeing this product that honestly was kind of boring. You, you had lots of strikeouts and, um, you know, you had home runs, but strikeouts were way up. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, for a guy like Garrett Cole, who, uh, you know, obviously has gone through the ringer here and has been one of the focal points of this uh, crackdown on the sticky stuff, he had to go back to the drawing board and find a, you know, a way to pitch without it. And we saw him have some rough starts for a while and then he figured it out. And I figured that, you know, for a guy with elite talent, like Garrett Cole, that wasn't going to bother him too much. He was going to figure something out. I think it was more those guys who were on the fringe who maybe belong in AAA, but were using that stuff to take a, a, a roster spot from somebody more deserving. I think that definitely happened. And now I think it's going to be a, a little more of a fair shake for those guys with the uh, the talent to break a big league pitching staff. Yeah, Brian, you wrote a book called the called uh, the Bronx Zoom that talked about the craziness that was the 2020 season. Can you talk about what that was like? Because I know that was definitely an adjustment for the players, but it had to be an adjustment for the people in the media. You know, calling games off the monitors, not going down into the clubhouse. What was that like? Yeah, that that's all in the book. And, and really Bronx Zoom, thank you for bringing that up is uh, it's a book about uh, the craziness that we all went through in 2020. Eh? The uncertainty of kind of are they going to be able to play this season? How is it going to happen? Like what needs to change? Can they make it through the, the schedule? There were a lot of points during that year where it didn't look like there was going to be a baseball season, even once they got started and they went back up to New York and they had their summer camp. And once they got started, I remember they were in Philadelphia and they just got stuck there for like three or four days because uh, the Phillies had been exposed to the Marlins who had about 13 COVID tests, you know, positives going there. And the Yankees were just stranded in their hotel in Philadelphia. And that the craziness of that season was that, 
okay, the Yankees can't play the Phillies. They were thinking about going back up to the Bronx, but instead the Orioles said, hey, can we play a game at Camden Yards? And so when has that ever happened where and MLB allowed it? They said, fine, go to Baltimore, go play the Orioles. So like, when does the schedule ever change in the middle of a year like that? It's never happened before. And uh, that was just kind of a year where you were going on the fly and, and trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And, and I, I figured that, once uh, once summer camp started, I started thinking about, man, if they're able to somehow pull this off, like this would be a book. Uh, this would be a book because I was there in spring training in March when the world stopped and everything shut down. And, um, you know, at the time they told us it was going to be about two weeks or at least two weeks. And you figured, OK, two weeks, like no big deal. And then that became four weeks and eight weeks and 12 weeks and 16 weeks. And then obviously New York city was being hit incredibly hard by the coronavirus. And, um, you know, more, I think than any other year, uh, baseball and real life intersected last year. And that was the story I wanted to tell there. It's, it's a baseball book, but it's also a book about, um, you know, everything that we went through in 2020 from the, the coronavirus to black lives matter and, and the presidential election. I mean, there was so much crazy stuff going on that, um, it definitely, I, I felt that telling that story and telling the player story in a book was, uh, was definitely the way to go. And speaking of how you wanted to connect, uh, how, what baseball went through last year to real life, because I mean, it really all came together last year. How is that still affecting the players today? Cause I mean, everyone in some way is still like suffering through what every, everyone went through last year. And, how does that affect the players off the field? We don't see them off the field much, but it's still got to linger with them. It, it does with me. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. I feel like when the fans came back and I think that at Yankee stadium this year, they started with about 10,000 and um, you know, the fact that now they're back to full capacity, I feel like that has kind of eased the guys back into normalcy, but playing in those empty ballparks last year was really hard. And I think what we I probably took the fans for granted. I think the players probably did too, because these guys have been playing in front of crowds since little league going all the way back. I mean, they're, I mean, you just know that when there's going to be a game, there are going to be fans there. And then you walk out that first time and it's just empty. And somehow you got to manufacture that energy and get up, you know, for this game and remember, all right, this isn't practice. Like this is a major league game and this counts. And like, we have to win this game. I, I think that at some point the guys were able to, to lock it in and, but it was awkward and weird. I was one of the few people who was allowed to be in Yankee Stadium for those games. And they allowed 35 media members in there. And so I, I went every chance I got to to be in that empty press box. But, um, you know, you'd walk into the ballpark and it, it would just be abandoned and dusty. And the, the gift shops were closed and there's no hot dogs and concessions and everything. And the seats are all empty. And it felt like the offseason. And then you make that turn and you see the lights are on and at seven o'clock. The Yankees are in their pinstripes. And it was kind of like, who are they playing this game for? Are, are they playing this game just for me? And you had to remember that there was an audience at home that really needed that distraction and needed to, you know, enjoy something in 2020, a year where there was just so much suffering and pain. Like, I think that baseball really helped a lot of people um, during that year and, um, it, you know, I, I think it definitely served a purpose to play that season. I'm glad they were able to make it through it. Ryan, we know you're a busy man. We are going to let you go. We really do appreciate you coming on to the show. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Instagram. I'm even on TikTok now. I'm, I'm trying to dip my, uh, 
dip into that a little bit. So I, I'm, I'm very, uh, very online. So yeah, but I'm on Twitter at Brian Hoke, B-R-Y-A-N-H-O-C-H. And you can go to my website and obviously read me on yankees.com, but I also have a website. It's uh, brian-hoke.com. Thank you everybody for tuning in to this week's episode of the baseball plug. I'm your host, Micah Fleischman. And I'm Nicholas Bear. You can find this show on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. You can follow me on Twitter at M-I-C-A-H underscore 0416. You can follow us on Instagram at the Baseball Plug Podcast underscore and our website, thebaseballplugpodcast.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at NicholasBear7 and on Instagram at NicholasGolfer. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Peace out.